This is the Grazia Life Advice Podcast. Welcome to another superb episode. I'm Rhiannon Evans and we are all set to hear from another brilliant woman. This time, a journalist, editor and podcaster. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm a journalist, former magazine editor, podcaster and now an author. In her work life, Lorraine Candy thinks nothing of rubbing shoulders with some of the world's most famous people. But it's her trials and tribulations with teenage daughters that have prompted her book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only Mothers of Girls Can Know. I've got every designer in the land on speed dial after 30 years of this industry and uh, they said to me what would she know about fashion I overheard them (laughs) talking to each other she's giving a talk at school about fashion what would she know about fashion (laughs) Lorraine is an encyclopedia of great advice when it comes to parenting but also career and finding your way in the working world Catelyn Moran taught me this thing when I first met her we've worked together on and off for a million years um, because we're the same age and uh, she said that she if she's really worried or nervous and thinks she's going to do something wrong and it's going to be terrible she just sits in front of the mirror and she says I am really good at this I am brilliant at this over a long career at the very top of publishing Lorraine's never been afraid to go against received wisdom we started releasing our covers months before they were on the newsstand so that people could pre-order them. But the whole thinking at that point had been never release your cover, never release your cover. No one will see it till the moment it's on the newsstand. It will sell more. But could it sell more? Was there science behind? You know, and I think that's the same with parenting, isn't it? I loved having this chat and the life advice is so on point. So here she comes, Lorraine Candy. Hi, Lorraine. How are you? I'm very perky this morning. Very perky. Fantastic. And where are you sat? I can see it's a beautiful room with loads of pictures, magazine covers. <laughs> well, I am sat in our tiny little study, which is the most soundproofed room in a house full of uh, children, adults and dog. And yeah. it's got all my leaving covers. Um, when you leave a magazine, yes. they do a cover for you and write kind of witty pun headlines um, based on your behaviour during your time as editor of the (laughs) magazine or newspaper. And I've been around a long time. So this is 30 years of covers, basically. (laughs) Fantastic. They look great. And you're about to release a book, which is why we have you here today. And it's called, I want to say the full title, Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 (laughs) Things Only Mothers of Teenage Girls Know. Yes, that's the book. So it's out June 10th. I mean, there's an explanation in the title, but can you tell us what the book is about? And also, I think, why you wrote it? Yes, it's um, it's a book about the mum-daughter relationship in the teenage years. And it's a book that kind of explains what's going on because it's it was very perplexing for me. I have four children, three girls and a boy. I have three teenagers in the house. My two eldest are 18 and 17 girls at the moment. And I was kind of knocked sideways by the teenage years. It was just such a giant shock. And a lot of the relationship between a teenage girl and her mum is so much more complex than the relationship with dad. And I just set out to explore with all the experts I could what on earth was going on during these years because they do really reject mums. Most teenage girls will really reject their mums and it's really discombobulating. And also you are usually for this generation of women going through your perimenopause or your menopause or your midlife. So there's hormones and the way you're living, reacting to all those hormones. Um, And I'd been keeping a diary and also writing a column in the Sunday Times magazine and also female in the Daily Mail for 15 years about parenting. And I had access to all these kind of experts, neurological experts, therapists. And I just thought, 
I don't want to explain the extreme things that happen in teenagers. Proper experts need to do mm. that. But the small, ordinary, day-to-day life things that really throw you, that you know, can make you sad, make you feel a bit alone, I just thought it's worth explaining that and perhaps there would be more harmony for mums of teenage girls because that's kind of what we need, really. And then we'll all feel better about it and maybe navigate those years a bit easier because you do come out the other side, I am told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and lesser explored, you know, you kind of open up talking about, you know, all the worries you had with sleep training, yeah, all the methods you did, and how you wish actually you knew there was worse to come, shall we say. <laughs> and And is that something you thought was kind of lacking in the world as kind of conversation? Well, I just felt that, you know, it's very private what you go through with your teenage daughter, because a lot of it is surprising and they do do some things sometimes that you're you're a bit ashamed of they're a bit ashamed of and and you can't you don't have an nct group like when they're younger you can't go over and say oh my god my my um my toddler keeps pooing behind a curtain every time i go on a play date that's not the kind of thing that you share as teenage mums it's a little bit more serious and you know and it's less humorous and and there's still this I think there's still an air of competitiveness around women. It's not the women themselves. It's the the context of the society we live in. And you sort of feel like I can't, I'll be a failure if I um, share all of this. I, you know, all this work I've put in, all these years of no sleep and feeding them well and everything. And, and this is not how I expected it to be. And I don't know what to do. And I just didn't feel there was anywhere to share that. Also, nowhere for other mums to say, you're doing a really great job with your teenager. She's just amazing. And I make the point in the book that we tend to forget the invisible moments of mothering during teenage, the moments when you did handle a situation brilliantly, when your teenager, you know, just gives you a hug for no reason, all these little moments you don't celebrate. We tend to get overwhelmed by the horror of some of the more difficult moments we face. And we do face quite a few of them in the teenage years because they're forming an identity and it's it's hard work for them. And it is teenage girls specifically, obviously you have a teenage son as well. Was that something you wanted to you know, narrow in on because it is a very different experience at that age. Yeah, I mean, we can't generalise about teenagers, people, humans, full stop, I think. But I have two teenage girls. That's my lived experience Mm -hmm. at the moment. And I, every time I talk to an expert, whether I talk to someone on, you know, I host a podcast called Postcards from Midlife with Trish Halpern. Mm -hmm. I was writing the column in the Sunday Times. And every time I talk to an expert, it seemed to me it's a really unique relationship because their main need as a teenager is to form their identity. And to do that, they look to the one other woman in their life who's their kind of most significant role model and they absorb all your behaviour, all your thinking. They've been absorbing this since they were born. And Mm -hmm. you just need a few little pointers, I think, based on what experts say in science now, to help make that a little bit more harmonious because partly they have to reject a lot of the female role modelling they have around them. And that's um, it's really painful to take. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I just uh, wonder as well, you know, you've been writing about your family for a long time, as you say. In this book, you do, by necessity of it being about teenage girls, talk about things like sexuality, your daughter going on holiday with her boyfriend when she was 16. You know, does that all get run past them? Do they read everything? And how does that go? Yes, I'm, you know, I'm very clear that everything in the book has been read by my girls. They really couldn't care less, um, (laughs) which is another, you know, (laughs) I'm very insignificant to them. And any success I have is, you know, as one, as my teenager says towards the end of the book, she says, what are you doing? I'm writing, finishing my book. And she says, oh, you're not qualified to write that. (laughs) 
as if I've never written anything in my life after 30 years of journalism. So yeah. we are comfortable with the privacy element of this. It's it's my job. It's what we know. And I do make the point in the book, it's really hard, I think, for parents to navigate that at the moment because informed consent, e.g. you say to them, are you happy with this? And they say yes. Can a can a 10-year-old really be happy with the stuff you're putting on Facebook when they say yes? I don't know if that's an informed consent. So I do, do ask everyone to think about that. I, I didn't think I could write a book without sharing personal experience. I thought it wouldn't be as believable. And, you know, I, sh- I share very little, actually, <laughs> um, of what I've personally gone through. But I do share um, anonymous uh, stories of other women who've been through quite significant changes with their teenagers. But I do think if we were to share it a little bit more, you know, in our WhatsApp groups, and, you know, we would get rid of the shame of some of the things we feel happen mm-hmm. during the teenage years, and perhaps would be less blaming of, of um, because the context of how your teenager is at school and all areas of life is is as important as home as well. So it's not just mum. And it's it's the other point I make is every child's brain develops in a very different way. So what you do with one teenager, you might not do with your another teenager coming through. So it is it's worth having all of that in in your mind. I feel okay about it and they seem okay about it. I only share what they are comfortable with. Yeah, and it makes me laugh. You have a little conversation dotted through the book and one of them, as you say, is her saying, oh, I don't really care what you're doing today or what you've learned today, I think yeah. she says. You know, they've got a cool mum. They've got a magazine editor, cool mum, you know, and they don't even know. No, they once said to me, you know, I've got every designer in the land on speed dial after 30 years of this industry and yeah. uh, they said to me, what would she know about fashion? I overheard <laughs> them talking to each other. She's giving a talk at school about fashion. What would she know about fashion? <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Well, we're here for all of your advice, fashion and otherwise. So let's start off with that. Um, I love your first piece of advice. And sometimes I want to put these pieces of advice on a poster. And this is one of them. It's think big or stay in bed. I love what that summarises. Tell me what that means for you. Because I don't have any qualifications and I left school at 16. I'm gullible, consistently gullible all the way through my life. I just think anything is possible. I don't know who, where the quote originated from, but it's a fairly modern quote. But I just think unless you start the day or any project you're doing thinking the absolute biggest you can, then you might as well just stay in bed, mind you. I mean, that doesn't, you know, there is so much joy and fun in what I call the epic hustle, just kind of constantly trying for the bigger goal all the time. I mean, when we launched the podcast... Michelle Obama was our first guest list on the top of the list. And if you don't start with Michelle Obama talking about midlife, you don't end up with all the people that you get on it. You know, whenever I used to do a cover for Elle magazine or for Cosmo, I would go as high as I possibly could and never consider that that might not happen, that it was always, even if it was the tiniest 0.0% of possibility, if it's a goal, your head is tilted in the direction of it and you're heading towards it harder than if you just think, oh, well, that'll never happen. I might as well just do this. So I always think think big or stay in bed is a good... And it's a good team-building thing as well. I mean, I've worked with the most brilliant teams and couldn't have done anything I did on any of the magazines. Any of the wars wouldn't have meant anything apart from these amazing teams. And I would hear them say it to themselves as I heard them on the phone sort of hustling for cover stars and things. Well, we're thinking big here. We're going to think big or stay in bed. And it's a nice one to have, I think. Do you ever see the other side of it? Do you ever think, do you know what, today I'm going to have a relaxing day in bed because I'm not doing something huge? Or for you, are you always pushing for something? I'm quite manic, I think. Um, Certainly in my midlife years, sort of 
from the age of, I'm 52 now, so from the age of 45, I probably realised that that manic is great in some cases. <laughs> it would be detrimental to my health if I continued to be that kind of, en- I'm having an enormous amount of energy for many, many years. So, mm. you know, managed to do the job and have the children. I've got an amazing husband who, who does 50% of everything. Yeah. But, you know, I always thought, what else can I do to make it even better? That was always, um, I wasn't really comfortable having a day in bed. That wouldn't have been my nature, I don't think. Is it now or still now? Yes. Oh, my God. It's the, the absolute, you know, I mean, you asked for six pieces. This would have been my seventh. For for God's sake, take care of yourself. If mm-hmm. you are too tired, if it is too much, you don't have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which has been, it has been a real light bulb moment for you, for me over the last five years. Yeah. Just, just take a break. You don't have to do it. You can get that rest in between the other things that make you happy. And I guess working in such a deadline-driven yeah. industry has always, you know, kind of worked with that drive yeah. for you as well. Yeah, I think that's why I was drawn to journalism. I, I left, I was doing my A-levels. I left school in the summer while I was doing my A-levels to do work experience on the Cornish Times newspaper. And they offered me a job and I just gave up the education immediately and and, and worked because I loved it. It didn't, at no point in my career has it ever felt like a job but it has always felt like doing something that is the most fun and incredibly privileged to be in all the places I've been every day and I've been so grateful for all of that I've never felt like I'm doing a job so yes but also but when you slot into a deadline based industry you do become manic with the deadlines you need to do stuff in a certain amount of time and it is quite a big mindset I think and also if you have children you if you are going to go to work and leave them um, in the care of someone else and paid childcare was what we relied on, then you really have to enjoy what you do at work. I know I was yeah. very privileged to be able to do that. But the moment jobs stopped being fun, I moved out of them into something else. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell us what your second piece of advice is? Well, this is something that perplexes me. It may just be my personality, but my second piece of advice, and I really, really wish young women particularly would take this on board, is not everyone is going to like you. It's statistically impossible for everyone to like you. So it's okay if some people don't like you, but this shouldn't affect how you feel about you. Mm -hmm. So you should always like you. And when you do things you don't like, you should stop doing them but I've often mentored young women who whose days are constrained by their fear that they'll do something that will mean somebody doesn't like them and if you let go of that it's a real release of pressure I think so to walk away from a situation and think well that person didn't like me or didn't like what I did I'm fine with that I'm comfortable how I am that does relieve you of quite a bit of stress I think yeah your third piece of advice is that mothering is all about active listening and that life is also about active listening Active listening is letting someone tell you something without, A, inserting your experience, similar experience, which we often do because we want to make people, you know, we want to make our kids feel comfortable, our teens feel comfortable, but also not trying to solve the problem. So if you're actively listening, someone is telling you something because they need to get this outside to, to, you know, if your teenagers will tell you lots and lots of things and instinctively as a mum and I think a lot of mums do you think I've got to sort this out I've got to sort this out so you're not really listening as they're telling you things you're already thinking what's the solution to this how can I do this but actually what they need is to tell you it because their brain is starting to work it out as they're telling you it so if you step in and solve it then you stop that that happening you stop them working out ways you remove tools from them that they need and active listening is is 
really about but you know just letting that person try and solve it themselves it's quite a it's it's what they do in therapy and I think it's really useful in parenting to just really sit and listen and then just reflect back on what you think your teenager is saying or what you think your colleague is saying or what you think your toddler is saying you know it's like when toddlers have these giant meltdowns you can't you know you can't so it'll be because the toy is in the wash but the toy is in the wash you can't there's nothing you can do about it at that point so you you have to say why well, what how are you feeling so I understand what I'm hearing is that you are blah, blah, and it's that kind of constant interchange they may not be able to react back to you or talk back to you about it but the actively listening to people often I find particularly with dads actually of teenagers that when a teen talks about something dad will say Oh, when I was at university, I used to do this. Or when I was at things, as if that normalises it, makes it feel better. And they don't want to hear about what happened 400 years ago. They just want you to listen to the end of their story. And and the moment they don't feel listened to as teenagers, it it really unnerves them. It's really unhelpful. It's really upsetting for them emotionally, actually, because they feel stuff in a very intense way that we don't feel quite so much as adults. I mean, Women are better at it than men, I would say. As I interrupt you, (laughs) (laughs) my first thought is that that is really hard and it's the opposite from this kind of helicopter parenting that we kind of all do, don't we? Kind of get involved and sort that out, sort that out. But also to go back to your earlier points, maybe something that we should be practicing earlier on so that when we get to that point. I think if you can practice active listening with your eight nines, your pre-teens, your tweens, they have real reassurance that you're going to be there for them, that that mm-hmm. whatever they bring you, no matter how difficult, you're not going to try and solve it. Because when you try and solve it, you then start to make judgments around it. You start to say things like, well, if you haven't lost your keys in the first place, you wouldn't be in this situation. Mm-hmm. That That's not what they want to hear when they're saying, I can't get in, it's raining, I don't know where I am. You know, that's they don't want to hear that. But if you've started that and it's a habit you've really brought into family life it's really helpful because it's also helpful around talking about sex talking about drugs talking about risk behavior risky behavior as a teenager talking about periods talking about really intimate things if you they know you're going to actively listen and not interrupt and not try to solve it and not judge it or you know even if you can't really deal with what they're telling you you need to sit and let them get through to the end of it and often with teenagers the monologues just go on forever so you have to be quite patient but you know with eight nine-year-olds I certainly do it with my 10-year-old I will let her finish and I don't try and solve her problems all the time. Fantastic really great tip we'll be back with more from Lorraine after this. We're here with Lorraine Candy and could you please tell us what your fourth piece of advice is? This is something I learned from a really brilliant therapist called Julia Samuel. She's an expert on grief. She's very famous. We know, I think you all probably, your listeners will all know her. She said you need to ignore what she calls the shitty committee. So this is your negative inner voice telling you all the time how rubbish you are at something. So when I praise young women in a work environment, they will say, oh, really, do you think so? It's a relentless inner critic that's an outer critic as well when someone tries to praise you or thank you or help you. (laughs) And if if that shitty committee in your head stopped and you thought, actually, I did make a really good meal. Actually, I did a really good bit of parenting there. I'm really happy about the toilet training at the moment. That If you can ignore it and turn it into a more positive voice, I do think it's better for the nervous system for a start and I do think it makes life a little bit easier and less stressful you know because you may do terrible things and be a bit rubbish at stuff and fail all over the place but you don't need the inside telling you that as well your inside voice 
telling you that, do you? No. And also, if you do fail, you learn so much from messing up. I always think just sit down when you've really messed up and write a list mm-hmm. of all the terrible things that went wrong and then just work out logically where you can't do that. And now I'm really good at this at work, <laughs> but I'm not so good at it with, with parenting. Kathleen Moran taught me this thing when I first met her. We've worked together on and off for a million years because um, we're the same age. And uh, she said that she, if she's really worried or nervous and thinks she's going to do something wrong and it's t- going to be terrible, she just sits in front of the mirror and she says, I am really good at this. I am brilliant at this. I am a really good cook. I am a really good writer. I'm a funny writer. People like what I write. And just a bit of that changes your mindset, I think. And it just changes the way your body feels about things and it helps your breathing. So it's such a, you know, for ages, we've always thought that the mind and the body were separate and they're so interlinked. And I do think if you've got constant inner negativity, you know, you, you are making your insides a bit messy. There's also, I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like there's a bit of a uh, a bit of a mistake between what is honesty and what is negativity at the moment. So if yeah. it's particularly in like momfluencer world, if we can call it that, talking about kids, yeah. you know, people feel like they have to put up photos and say, I know this looks like a nice photo, but we had a really tough day and da 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 and telling everyone your flaws and, and kind of saying that that's honesty and that we need to be honest. But honesty is different, right, from telling everybody everything that's going on in your head all the time yeah that's your business to sort your head out isn't it you can't so what you're doing there is trying to make everyone get everyone else to tell you to silence the committee you've got to do it yourself I mean I'm I'm always a big bit worried about all the tv shows and columns that portray mums as incompetent working mothers or mothers who work outside the home as chaotic incompetent nitwits in the you know just just for the last because it's okay to say look I was really organized today I got to the school play on time I got all my work done on time I have a nanny that I pay for to do that you know I don't need you know I'm not spending my day racing towards a giant glass of wine because I've messed up all over the place it's a really unhelpful narrative I think for women working outside the home I can see why it's it's funny and you know and I love something like Motherland I think it's really well written and it's great but I just slightly wince at the negativity of it and how it plays into the context that we should all feel like we're failing somehow and we should all feel a bit flawed and we should just keep saying how flawed we are out loud if we just stop that inside yeah mummy wine time especially is terrible isn't it this idea that we all that makes me very cross wine time mummy wine time. i mean we all do like our glasses of wine and it is great adult moment in the day but it's just a stereotype, I think, that's been a little unhelpful, perhaps. You know, I think it's it's funny and I'm, gl- I'm glad people recognise it and could find identity and comfort in it. But I do think enough now of it. Yeah. Which goes on to your fifth piece of advice, which is to stay curious and always ask, just because it's always been done that way, do you have to do it that way? Was that more of a career thing for you? Were you always innovating or are you always still in- innovating in your career? Or is it in life in general? Well, it's in general, really, isn't it? I always think when you come from nowhere and, and you you have no qualifications, it's probably easier for someone like me to be curious because I'll say, does it always happen like this? I think I've noticed it a lot when, when uh, print and the, the digital world and the print world were starting to merge and it was all becoming very confusing for everybody. And But print was print people were very much, this is how we do it. And I would say, but do we? Ha- why would we have to do it like that? Maybe, you know, at L, we released all our... We started releasing our covers months before 
they were on the newsstand so that people could pre-order them. But the whole thinking at that point had been never release your cover, never release your cover. No one will see it till the moment it's on the newsstand. It will sell more. But had, could it sell more? Had, was there science behind? You know, and I think that's the same with parenting, isn't it? We are constantly told there is a way of doing something. But is there a way of doing something? Could we, could we, why don't we try the opposite way and see what happens? You know, often those things haven't been done the opposite way because they don't work, but we won't know until we find out. And I know your book isn't a, you know, it's not a strict manual, do this, no. do X, do Y. But were you conscious of that? Conscious yeah. of not adding just to another list of things mum should be doing? I just thought, what? why don't I just tell everyone, because the experts have told me, that there are some little things you can do, yeah. but they really won't work for every child. They won't work for every child you have. So it was to try and be kind of reassuring in the depth of our sort of despair because you know we've all sat on the bottom of the stairs whether we have teenagers or toddlers thinking this is just rubbish someone's got a rule book out there and I haven't read it and I don't know what I'm doing I mean you must remember the day you brought you know we brought our eldest home 18 years ago on a, in in her car seat and we just put her in the center of the lounge and I was 33 and I just said to my husband said I don't I, I don't really know what to do now yeah. I feel terrified and I just wanted to put something out there at the one of the more terrifying parts of mothering to say, you don't need to be scared. Everyone's going to get through it alive. We're all going to come out the other side and it's all going to be fine because it will all be fine. As I say, it's not for the extreme parts of um, yeah. parenting. This is just for normal day-to-day parents who think, what the hell, I can't deal with this. Yeah. Uh, Lorraine, your sixth piece of advice is about karma. Tell me what that is. It sounds a bit hippie and I'm very normally very logical, not not very kind of woo-woo, as we used to say at work. But um, it, kindness is a very efficient career move. <laughs> it really does pay back. Um, and it's it just makes you feel better. You know, I've tried to be kind all the way through and I've tried to think, you know, when I was on a tabloid reporter, knocking on doors, doing stories about people, I always had in mind that these were real people. This is not just headlines. This is not just an exclusive I'm getting for my byline. And, you know, and I often said no to a lot of things, which is why I wasn't the best of the door knocking reporters. But I think always whenever you go in a room, even when I've interviewed massive A-list stars for the cover, when I've interviewed, you know, I mean, I've done some big things i've presented magazines to rupert murdoch i've interviewed oprah winfrey on stage i've done talks with melinda get i've done big things and i always think these are real people however they come in however they are whether they're great or bad there has to be an element of kindness from me that's going to make it a bit better it will pay back the kindness always pays back the the metric is feeling okay about yourself and being able to sleep through the night and i think drop that ladder below you so that women can come up it because it's harder for women. It's really hard for black women in media. So drop that ladder, particularly for black women um, and brown women in, in media. Make sure that wherever you see it's harder for someone to do what you're doing, you perhaps you drop your privilege, you understand your privilege and you, you make sure that they benefit from your experience if they can or that you open a door wider for that person gen z is not going to put up with it they really their kindness is 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 that it flows through their veins most you know it's really important to them it's such a key part of their activism yeah and i think another thing that you said um in your advice was that praise can just be part of it so you can do that every day can't you you can help be that person that makes someone else realize they've done a good job today 
Yeah, and I think when you get to the middle life of your years and you start to realise you have less time left than the time that you've had, mm. you look back on situations and you think, I probably wasn't my kindest in that situation. I could have been kinder. And that's why it all went wrong, because I wasn't as good as I should have been. Yeah, praise mm. is great. Sometimes we forget that in the day-to-day. And often we forget to tell our daughters, our teenage daughters, we love them because they don't want us to hug them anymore. So... <laughs> You have, and, you know, and they, they physically can't be in the same room as you and they don't really want to have a conversation that's emotional and soft. So, you know, but just saying you love them when you give them a cup of tea, just that kind of, you know, just saying it's your partner if you've been married 10 million years. It's that that sort of praise is very helpful, I think, and it's very helpful from a kind of nervous system point of view as well. Yeah. We love to finish the podcast on a worst piece of advice we've ever been given. Just sometimes it's illuminating, sometimes it's just funny. Oh, I think my worst piece of advice is I went to school, massive Cornish, comprehensive, thousands of pupils. And um, I don't, you know, I mean, I've got to forgive the careers advisor. He must have seen 10 million people that day. But um, I went in all jolly and said, I really want to be a journalist. I, you know, I want to work on magazines, you know. And he just kind of looked at me and said, but you, you live in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere. You don't know anyone in the media. You don't know anyone in London. How can you possibly think that's a career? For you, you know, I was clearly telling him I wanted to get away as quickly as possible to somewhere else. And he was telling me there's no no escape for you. You have to stay exactly here. And I just thought, what a terrible thing to say to a child. That's the worst piece of advice anyone could possibly give me. (laughs) Well, you went against it and uh, here we are today. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rihanna. Thanks as ever for being with us for another episode. If you've enjoyed it, please rate and review Grazia Life Advice in your podcast player. It really helps us reach new people. See you next time.